The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. If you want to understand the Roman Empire, you cannot understand it if you go into it through a history of its individual characters. We love the stories and, you know, we don't want to get rid of them from our version of autocracy. And, you know, but I think those stories now tell us more about us than about the Romans. That was Mary Beard on the history of Rome. I really did feel that I knew Cicero in all his uh, complexity. And he's a, he's a very interesting uh, figure to write about, quite very modern in his sensibility, very accessible. And that was Robert Harris talking about the writing of his new novel on Cicero. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our second podcast of November 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This week's podcast is a Roman history special, where we'll be speaking to one of Britain's best-known historians and one of the country's most celebrated historical novelists. First up, it's Mary Beard, a professor of classics at Cambridge University and a regular fixture on BBC television. Mary has just written a one-volume history of Rome, entitled SPQR, which was the Romans' own abbreviation for the name of their state. We sent our reviews editor, Matt Elton, to meet Mary recently, and here's how they got on. What's your take on the founding myth of Rome and what it tells us about them themselves, I suppose? Uh, First point is, it is a myth. It is not true. And I'm afraid there are some people who 
you know, still would love to find the heart of Romulus, you know, really. Yeah. And, um, for me, the point is uh, that it's important in a quite different way. It doesn't tell you what happened. Uh, but as it is invented and massaged and retold and debated uh, in Roman history, it tells you huge amounts of how the Romans thought about themselves and where they came from. I mean, anybody's myth of origin is bound to tell you something about how they conceived their own identity and character. And I think that there's, well, there's two myths, really. There's, um, we're dealing with Romulus and Remus, and we're dealing with Aeneas, and they're both extremely interesting um, because the Romulus story, um, this Romulus and Remus, two little twins, they've been ousted by their grandfather, and they've been exposed and they've been found by the wolf, and then they, they come back uh, to found the city, you know, eventually having been brought up by an honest shepherd. Yeah. Um, from that point on, every bit of the story becomes fascinating because, first of all, they do find the city of Rome to start with together, and then Romulus kills Remus. And Romans debated that forever after, and they saw it, and it tells us a huge amount about their own self-perception. They saw it uh, as somehow the idea that civil war and fratricide was absolutely embedded in Roman history. Mm. You know, you couldn't... Romans never going to escape civil war because in the very beginning, the, you know, the first moment of Roman history was a brother killing a brother. And you know, not just a brother, twin brother killing twin brother. So right from the start, it's so embedded in everything yeah. else. Yeah. 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 So, you know, now, of course, this is a self-serving myth. <laughs> you, know, you, look at, so you look at your periods of civil war and... Uh, you know, increasingly you project that back into yeah. you know it's always Rome's always been like this. Civil war is in its DNA. You cannot you cannot be a Roman and escape civil war. And that I think is a very strong um, ideological undercurrent in Rome. Mm. But I think there's more to it than that. And I think that once once Remus has sadly been killed, and there were you know, all kinds of attempts to get round that. There's one very nice historian about whom we know absolutely nothing except that he said, oh, Romulus didn't really kill Remus. Remus lived to a ripe old age and actually outlived Romulus. You know, let's get over that problem. So, oh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but then Romulus founds his city and he hasn't got any, hasn't got any citizens. So he declares an asylum and says, my city is an asylum. Anybody can come here. You can be a criminal or a runaway. You can come here. Anybody, and loads of people come. So you have this vision, which I think is very topical in 2015. You have this vision that the Romans see their city as a city made up of asylum seekers. That is who the first population was. And it's that um, very strong strand of, of citizenly openness is something that lasts throughout Roman history to where I stop, things mm. change a bit afterwards, but certainly up to 212, where Rome's image of citizenship is not one of exclusion, but it's one of inclusion. Mm. And you know, as Rome conquers the world, and it's a brutal and bloody and very nasty process, I'm sure, um, what happens is that um, it increasingly brings in, with a certain time lapse, the people it's 
conquered into its citizenship, into its body of citizens. Mm. So it's an incorporating empire. You know, there are all kinds of advantages. You know, that is not a sort of very... They're not being nice and liberal and touchy-feely. Yeah. Um, in a way, that's a very strongly political move. It's giving them loads and loads of manpower, mm. actually. Yeah. Um, but it's, it is a model of citizenship quite different, and it's an image of uh, what Rome is that I think is very powerful for the Romans. You know, we, you know, we take people in, we don't push people out. Mm. And that, that's very, very different from, say, um, the model of citizenship that the 5th century Athenians had. Okay. Um, and their origin myth, and this was quite a common version in throughout the Greek world, was completely different from the Romans. They thought, they said, you know, who were the first citizens of Athens? Well, they were people who miraculously arose directly from the soil of Athens. So that's already starting out a version of Athenian talk about identity that is rooting it in something which is local and here and exclusive. And it's not surprising that Athens has a very rigid definition of of who could be a citizen and does not spread it. Hmm. Um, Moving ahead, because obviously we need to move fairly quickly we're on um, Romulus we could, we could spend the whole time on Romulus. I know and this is the trouble I have is the book's amazing and the subject's huge and you're just like how and don't and forget Aeneas because <laughs> yeah, Aeneas you know, let's just do Aeneas very quickly because Aeneas is a different version of that story because he also they have Rome always has too many myths that mm. he can handle so yeah. he's got his other foundation myth um, but where's Aeneas from he's not a kind of Act Italian either. He is a refugee. He's a oh, war refugee yeah, from yeah, yeah. Troy, and that, so they, in different ways, those same um, that same idea mm. comes out in both their big founding. That's really interesting. Yeah. How how and why do you think Rome was able to be so successful militarily? Um, I think there's some quite simple answers to that, and there's some very definite wrong ones. Um, they were not more aggressive or more militaristic than anybody living around them. You know, the ancient world, the ancient Mediterranean world, is a place where things are fought out. You know, the ultimate arbiter is force. In fact, not even the ultimate arbiter. The you know, first arbiter is force. There's no way of dealing with your relations with anybody else apart really from fighting. I mean, you know, and there's the occasion. There is eventually the occasional treaty, but these are part of the military operation. Really. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the Romans are, are, you know, we like to think of the Romans because it's a kind of convenient way and an easy way of understanding them as somehow committed to warfare more than all these poor people around them, you know, who were busy knitting or something. <laughs> and then were suddenly invaded by these nasty thugs. Now, the Romans are nasty thugs, and so everybody else are nasty thugs. And the Romans don't have any better tactics than anybody else. I mean, whatever tactics were in them early republic and they don't have any hardware which is better than anywhere else and I think it's where their system of citizenship comes in because I suppose the traditional way in this you know this basically an international world of endemic violence is you you um one city goes one city one band of blokes on a cattle raid you know which is basically what it is go they bash up the neighboring town um uh, they demand, you know, 500 cattle and some cash, and they go back home again. Mm. Now, what Rome does, which is absolutely fundamentally different, is it establishes 
permanent relations of alliances with the people that it defeats. It doesn't defeat everybody, uh, but when it does, it establishes an alliance and gradually it establishes links of citizenship with them. Okay. Now, what that does, it's not taxing them, uh, except in manpower. So, the, so as Rome expands, it forms permanent relationships of alliance or shared citizenship with the people round about it, uh, that, who's, where the only reciprocal obligation is the provision of manpower. Now, why they did that, you know, we have no clue. And, you know, you could imagine, you know, the early Senate sitting down and saying, you know, do you know, guys, I've got a brilliant, brilliant long-term strategy here. <laughs> but I think it's probably um, improvisation, mm, you know. Okay. They improvise, it becomes a system, mm. but it doesn't, it starts as an improvisation. And it gives them overwhelming uh, resources and manpower. And that's what wins. That is what wins a war mm. in the ancient world. Yeah. Um, and so Polybius, Greek historian, writing in second century BC, Polybius reckons that in the early third century BC, Rome can call on. Now, this isn't all people living in Rome, but throughout the peninsula of Italy, can call on over seven hundred thousand troops. Wow. Yeah. And it, it, it's that. So Rome um, loses battles much more often than they like to admit and much more often than we like to admit. But it, it's got that depth of resource, which means it doesn't lose wars. It, yeah. Because it, you know, it, it has ghastly defeats, but it can bring more guys into the firing line. Yeah. So I think, that, I think that's the key, and it's nothing to do with whether they're sort of... Harder in some yeah, way. You know, you know, of course, they, you know, they say they're all thugs and they're all committed to military glory, yeah. uh, but so is everybody else. Yeah. Just Rome wins. We've touched there on the misconceptions that people have now of various other cultures. Are there any other major ones that we have, particularly about Romans versus Greek people, I suppose? Yeah, I think we we live with a very convenient binary opposition between the Romans and the Greeks. You know, and that the Greeks are uh, intellectual, cultured, theorisers, um, who are probably, brackets, quite nice, you know, right? And the Romans are bridge builders, thugs, um, uh, horribly efficient, um, but brackets, probably quite nasty. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, this is an opposition that I hope to uh, break down. Uh, you know, not, I think, by turning the Romans into nice guys, because that would be... Um, uh, that'd be difficult, but by saying, "Look, you know, we, we don't judge antiquity between who's nice and nasty in our terms." We would, you know, <laughs> any trip back there, we'd find them all dreadful. <laughs> but uh, this whole world is, you know, committed to to military glory. So, you know, the Romans are not um, padding into uh, the Greek world, which is living at peace with itself. Um, bringing its force of arms and disrupting the world of culture yeah. and niceness. Um, in the, when Rome moves into Greece, which it does, it's the world of Greece which is in 
um, in succession to the conquests of Alexander the Great. It's not nice little democratic Athens sitting there. Uh, and nice little democratic Athens was pretty brutal too. Um, but it's big rival monarchists. Um, which have been established in the wake of Alexander the Great's conquest. And they're fighting each other for influence at their borders and at their boundaries continually. And I think the, the point is that Romans were probably quite willing to intervene, but they were certainly asked to intervene. Mm. You know, because as soon as Rome becomes a power that, with military resources that people in the Greek world have heard of, then, of course... Um, they're seen as potential allies. Mm. And so Rome is partly drawn in. Now, I, I don't imagine the Senate was hugely reluctant, you know. I don't think we have <laughs> oh, to say... Have to, yeah. you know, oh, if we have to, yeah. Oh, dear, this is... Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it was certainly a process that had an incentive on both sides. Mm. And so, um, you know, Greece is not the world of Greece, because it's many different communities and states. It's not an innocent victim of Rome in any way. And I think that the other thing is that it's not either that, that Rome is sitting there completely uncultured until it suddenly says, my goodness me, you know, the Greeks have got art and literature. Do you think we could have that too? Now, to some extent, Rome has a very um, uh, curious vision of itself as being a secondary culture. It does, oh, okay. it does yeah. say... Um, uh, we are so indebted to Greece. Ah, yeah. It does say that. Yeah. Um, but what happens is something, again, which is much more dynamic um, in terms of the relationship between, you know, Greek and Roman culture, you know, rather than Rome just being a sort of vacuum into which Greek culture goes. You know, so that there's, again, it's a two-way process. And I think one nice symbol of that is that uh, in the third century BC, there's the first Roman historian, the first Roman to write history of Rome, a guy called Fabius Pictor, mm. who's a Roman senator. Um, he writes his history of Rome in Greek. So here you've got Roman senator writing a history of his country in Greek. Now that shows you, I think, the kind of complexity. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of people think Rome comes after Greece, that, that Greece comes first. You know, if you do a kind of timeline of the ancient world, it's got ancient Egyptians, you know, way back yeah, there, yeah. Greeks, Romans. Now, actually, um, classical Greek and classical Roman culture are more or less contemporary. Mm, okay. the, the first Olympic Games, which is where we tend to start Greek culture, is mythically, it's much the same mythical date as the foundation of Rome. Um, what happens and why people think of it in that linear terms is that Greece has literature before. So they're right. writing. So we learn, we have contemporary literature about the Greek world from Greeks before we have from Rome. Mm. So we, you know, we, Homer gives us a vision into the Greek world before we get it in yeah. literary terms from Rome. And also then Rome eventually conquers Greece. So you see Rome as the new guy on the block. Actually, they just have... They're contemporary, but with very different patterns yes. of historical development. And Rome, you know, Rome is right to say that, in, in, that, that they, are, they are indebted. They do their own culture, their own distinctive cultural forms, as we now see them, are at least partly um, generated in dialogue with the Greek world. 
but in a much more sophisticated way than, um, than people think. Yeah, and, yeah. and there's these great, uh, the earliest Roman literature in Latin to survive in bulk is actually comedy, com- dramatic comedy. And already the first comedies by Plautus, um, you know, around 200, um, are already joking about that relationship with the Greek world. Because he'll say, OK, play the prologue, addressing the audience. So play by Plautus here. Actually, I got it from, you know, Minophilus. <laughs> and what I've done is barbarised it. <laughs> right? so the end, yes. Now, so what you've got already at the very beginning is you get Rome joking about yeah. its own barbarity. So they're self-aware about it. Yeah, it is very, um, it's terribly self-aware. And I think it's that kind of thing which undermines this sense that Rome is just a gap waiting for Greek culture and literature to fill. If we were to step through the doors of our time machine into Rome in this period, what would be the first thing that struck us? What would be... The smell. The smell, yeah. (laughs) Uh, um, I think if we were there in the middle of the first century BC, before Julius Caesar, before the emperors, before one man rule, um, we would be struck, I think, by how unimpressive it was in some ways. I mean, uh, Rome is not exploiting Italian marble quarries until later in the first century, so the building is all a fairly rough local stone. Occasionally they've imported a bit of Greek marble and got some other posh columns, but it's it's at this point, relatively low rise, some apartment blocks going up, um, but it's local tufa stone, painted probably rather crudely. Um, you know, loads of stolen and looted artworks in the temples, but it's not a planned city. Mm. Um, there are, there's almost no um, service infrastructure. Um, so there's rubbish on the streets, um, it's crowded, um, and it's very, very smelly. Um, we should talk about the emperors, I suppose. What's your take on Augustus? Um, and partly still puzzlement, I think. I mean, the, the, the problem is, which I don't think anybody has or can solve now, is that Augustus goes down in one version of Roman history, as the founding father of the Roman Empire. You know, and no emperor was ever as good as Augustus, ever again. The first one, he has a very long reign, 31 BC to 14. Um, uh, and you know, he changes the face of the city of Rome. Um, he establishes a form of relatively benevolent one-man rule. Um, uh, and he is father of his country. Um, uh, uh, a, a kind of dictator with a smile, benevolent. He manages to um, buy in the aristocracy, the traditional aristocracy, into his system. You know, they have been, you know, a, a highly competitive quasi-democracy. Um, so competitive, you know, it's kind of Civil War-style competitive. He manages to win most of them over um, into a new version of... Um, uh, Roman rule which depends on one man but he is seen as first amongst equals etc etc okay um, yeah, and that's the shining story of Augustus um, 
his early career was as the most nasty young terrorist you could possibly imagine. And he, uh, after the death of Julius Caesar, he's just a late teenager and he comes back, uh, he raises his own army, exactly what he tries to prevent anybody else doing ever after, later, raises his own army, um, goes into the murderous triumvirate with, along with Mark Antony before they quarrel and the bit part player Lepidus. Um, they slaughter... Uh, in you know a, a, in a pogrom, hundreds of Roman citizens, including Cicero, mm. um, uh, and he is talked about in that literature as being um, a warlord, really, uh, and you know he does all kinds of things like he tears people's eyes out with his bare hands, you know. <laughs> and then he comes, you know, after all this, he eventually quarrels with his erstwhile allies. No one is quite sure who's going to take over the mantle of Julius Caesar. He eventually defeats Mark Antony, um, uh, who's in alliance with Cleopatra. And basically they, just, you know, they go to this battle at Actium and they decide to call it a day. Uh, um, Octavian is one. And he comes back home and almost instantly he's reinvented himself. As, now, we've seen that in the modern world, you know, the terrorist who becomes father of his country. Augustus, you know, beats them all, really. Um, and that transition and how he managed that transition is extraordinarily difficult to tell. Mm -hmm. um, but, of course, he is... Um, one problem he never solves, and it's a problem which dogs the Roman Empire ever after, is succession. Mm. Um, it, it's pretty clear that Augustus is intending his one-man rule to be in some form hereditary, but although he and his wife Livia have um, children by previous marriages, they have no children together. Um, and there's this wonderful bit in the beginning of Robert Graves' is I, Claudius, because everybody's always having funny, everybody's got doesn't Claudius says at the beginning of I, Claudius, I don't think Augustus could get it up with Livia. <laughs> that was a problem, she's so scary. Um, but that's that's the difficulty. So yeah. you start this hereditary, this would be hereditary empire with uh, no line of succession mm. and actually no system of succession. Not only no line of succession, no system. They, you know, we th we think kind of of, um, of monarchical systems as basically working in some form of primogeniture, and um, that was not the case. You know, in any sense in Rome and I mean and we I suppose we, we accept that primogeniture is a sensible system because it provides no doubt about who the heir should be mm. even though sometimes it gives you an idiot right? <laughs> yes no, right? That's now, say, yeah. Romans would find that puzzling I think because they don't have an automatic system of primogeniture ever anywhere and they would say, no, because they're looking, they, don't, they want to avoid idiots. But the cost of avoiding idiots is you have no system. So and so succession is always fought out. Of his successors, of the following emperors, do any stand out for you as being perhaps unfairly overlooked or as particular favourites is the wrong word, but striking characters? <laughs> I think that's impossible to answer. And I think <laughs> partly because we have been seduced into seeing the Roman Empire as a series of individual rulers mm. and marking them down as good or bad, right? And of, of, of seeing character 
immorality, you know, sexual mores as really crucial. And what we tend to debate about is whether the good ones were as good as they're cracked up to be or the bad ones as bad. So you get some nice revisionist history where someone said Caligula, well, he's gone down in history as a terrible monster, but really, look, look more carefully. Uh, and I think we tend to overlook um, the way that tradition is formed. So um, there is a basic rule of the Roman Empire that if you are assassinated you have a bad reputation. And because, obviously, reputation is always, in Rome as now, um, determined by your successors, uh, if you're assassinated, you have to be assassinated because you are a monster. Mm. Now, there is a basic paradox here that um, it is just as likely that you were turned into a monster because you were assassinated as you were, you were assassinated because you were a monster. Mm. We now cannot see. We, it, is, it is impossible to tell. You can't distinguish um, whether an internal palace plot, against, say, Caligula, mm. um, then the PR machine, what we're then victim of is the PR machine, yeah. or whether Caligula was... It is unsayable. Right. And... So, kind of, there is a kind of sense of, devote, of debating emperors, good and bad, is in some ways fundamentally flawed. But I think it's also fundamentally flawed for other reasons, which is that actually the empire goes on in much the same way, um, being ruled from the centre, um, more or less, sometimes less, sometimes more efficiently, no matter who the emperor is. So you, know, you, you read, I mean, the Romans themselves are very interested in the character of a ruler, what or not crap was, and, and how, you know, how morality, in a sense, could be constructed around the virtues or failings of an emperor. But the basic, you know, the basic logic is it appears to have mattered not a jot who was on the throne. Yeah. And so if you want to understand the Roman Empire, um, you cannot understand it if you go into it through a history of its individual characters. That's, there are all sorts of, you know, we love the stories and, you know, and we don't want to get rid of them from our version of autocracy. And, uh, you know, but I think those stories now tell us more about us than about the Romans. Yeah. Um, you know, we, it's us that's really interested in whether, you know, little fishes, uh, boys, nibbled Tiberius's genitals when he was in the swimming pool. That's what, you know... Um, but the, the absolutely crucial fact is there is a system going on here which is not dependent in almost any way on the guy on the throne. Mm -hmm. Given the, the vast gulf between the experiences of rich people and poor people, why do you think there weren't more social uprisings? Or were there social uprisings? We don't know about them. I mean, this is quite, it is really is a tricky one mm. because, I mean, just to kind of in a sense, go back to your question, it is, in some ways it is the thing that puzzled me most actually about the city of Rome, that the imperial palace or the emperor's properties, including pleasure gardens, etc., etc., cover hectares and hectares of the place, while the poor people are squashed like sardines. Mm. Now, that has always been for me a puzzle that um, 
how can, in a city which is so deprived, how can the emperor, you know, never mind the aristocracy, but how can the emperor police his gardens? Mm. How, how can one man monopolise space when other people have none? And that, there's two answers, I think, to that. Um, and one is that there is a high premium put on ensuring that the urban populace are at least fed. Right? Now, uh, nasty Roman satirists kind of um, tend to be very dismissive. Um, you know, and Juvenal famously said, bread and circuses, you know, how kind of awful. You know, that's what, that's kind of pap mm. for the populace. Turn it on its head and say, look, actually, the Roman citizens, many Roman citizens do get a condom. And rather than it being, you know, a, a, a city of benefits crouches, um, it's actually a, a city probably the first in Western history, where the state took some responsibility as the state for ensuring that the people were, were, were not starving. Mm. Um, and that may have something to do with it. It may have a lot to do with it, mm. in fact. I think the other side is that we don't, that there is urban, there's endemic urban unrest that um, that is a consequence of deprivation and um, vast disparities of wealth, but which gets written out of history. Right. Okay. You know, and I think you can see that perhaps more easily, but I suspect it is the same for the poor, free population city of Rome in relation to slavery. As people often say, um, you know, let's go down the pecking order one. It's very odd that there are so few slave revolts in the whole of Roman history. And that is true. There's a few in Sicily in the 2nd century BC and there's Spartacus in, in the 1st century BC, and that's about all. Now, uh, the key is to say, look, slave discontent was not uh, shown principally through mass organised revolt. It was th shown through individual slaves scarpering, and it was shown through domestic warfare. It was, you know... It was pilfering, it was spitting in the master's soup, um, all that kind of stuff. And I suspect that um, urban social unrest is the same thing. That we want to see mass revolution, you know, the working class in Rome, you know, standing up for themselves. Yeah. Uh, it's not that they're not, but they're, they're not acting communally. Right. So there's no... Okay, I it must... Yeah. They're just, you know... The Roman state does have some responsibility, and, as, as, and I think once you get to the period of one-man rule, the emperor probably puts quite a high premium on there not being mass urban violence. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? That, that is sense. Yeah. Yeah. And there are various ways of helping to ensure that, yeah. not by a police force, um, but by um, food by some forms of amenities. Um, but I, I think a realist would have to say there was mass urban discontent, but it it is low-level endemic, not, you know, they've not got a class consciousness, the Roman sure. Yeah. If you could somehow travel back in time to this period and ask a question of someone, 
what would you what would you ask? <laughs> that's a oh, that's a really uh, that's a really tough one. Uh, the, the, when it comes to it, the big questions about Roman history we, are quite easy to talk about, and it's the sort of you know little things like day to day stuff. The day to day yeah. stuff, you know. So there's there's that. It's also I mean, I always wonder what it was really like to go to Roman baths. You know, that, that you've got this, you know, you have these great buildings, probably a bit unsanitary, actually. Mm. And we're all supposed to go in here, and it's the, we go into the, you go into the frigidarium, and then we go into the tepidarium, and it's all kind of fantastic. We might even, if it's big, but I can catch sight of the emperor and one of his occasional visits. Oh, what? You know, yeah. when you went, where did you leave your clothes? You know, when did they get nicked? You know, so I want to go down to, you know, the little, little details yeah. of, you know, things that we absolutely take for granted. That was Mary Beard. SPQR is out now in the UK, published by Profile. And in the US, it is also now available, published by LiveWrite. And you can read more from Matt and Mary in the December issue of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. Inside this month's magazine, we have articles on Henry VIII's will, the luck of Richard III, the history of China, and the Loch Ness Monster, among other things. You can get hold of our December edition now, in all good newsagents and digitally. And now we have a short advertisement break. Rene Weiss, author of The Real Traviata, introduces the extraordinary young woman who inspired Verdi's opera, La Traviata. Yes, Marie de Plassy was a young woman from Normandy who basically took Paris by storm. She died at the age of 23. She was barely 23 when she died. She'd come from absolute, almost unimaginable rural poverty. But so she was a very clever very bright young woman who spotted an extraordinary opportunity. We know that her protector, this famous protector, uh, Moni, gave her the arrange for the best teachers in everything to look after her. So for about 15 months of her life, she was taught by the best and the brightest in Paris. And the result is that she became famous in the metropolis, in this extraordinary city that was Paris. The Real Traviata is now available online and in all major bookshops, priced at £25. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. 
Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Before our next interview, I'd like to tell you about our next BBC History magazine events, which are taking place in February. On Saturday the 27th and Sunday the 28th of that month at Bristol's Emshed Museum, we're holding two day events themed around Roman Britain and the First World War in 1916. Each day includes a star-studded lineup of speakers plus a buffet lunch. If you'd like to find out more or to purchase tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. Our second interview this week is with Robert Harris, a hugely successful historical novelist whose books include Enigma, Fatherland and Pompeii. His most recent book is Dictator, which concludes a trilogy about the Roman statesman and thinker Cicero. Robert spoke to Matt Elton a little while back about the new book and about how he writes historical fiction. So this is the final book in a trilogy. Uh, For people who might not know, what characters do we follow and where do we pick up their story? Well, the book starts in 58 BC with um, Cicero being sent into exile um, after the, uh, you know, his career has really just completely collapsed. Uh, And he flees Italy uh, and his life is in danger and he has to go and live uh, in uh, Macedonia. And uh, that's the beginning of the book. And the book covers 15 years from that point uh, until Cicero's death. Mm. It's an extraordinary period. You describe it as one of the most kind of busy in history, I suppose. What sort of events do we cover in the book? Oh, uh, the book covers, I suppose, the chief event is the uh, Caesar's crossing of the Rubicon and the uh, civil war that then breaks out between the senatorial forces led by Pompey uh, and Caesar's army uh, and then the dictatorship after Caesar has beaten Pompey and then Caesar's uh, assassination, and then the chaos and descent into another civil war that follows. Um, And um, to begin with, Cicero is on the periphery of events, but gradually he's drawn in like a cork in a a whirlpool. Uh, And at the very end, he, he does have this resurgence where he ends up back running the Roman Republic yet again. It's an extraordinary story. Uh, I mean, how have you decided to tell it? How have you chosen to tell these events? The events are seen from the point of view of Cicero's secretary, a man called Tiro, who um, was a real-life figure and was at Cicero's side throughout his life and who outlived him and produced a a multi-volume life of Cicero, which is lost Uh, fortunately, from my point of view. So I've sort of recreated this book. He was a very interesting man, Tiro. He was the founder, in a way, of modern shorthand. And he took Cicero's speeches down verbatim. So he was constantly at his side in the law courts and in the Senate. And I imagine that he goes into private meetings as well as his secretary and, and takes a note of what's said. So from this point of view, I can go in with Cicero into all the main events of the uh, Roman Republic. And, um, you know, it gives the reader a kind of ringside seat at these tumultuous events. What other sort of sources did you use in the course of writing this? Well, first and foremost, the uh, classic 
blurb edition of Cicero's uh, speeches, uh, um, writings, and letters. Uh, that runs to 29 volumes. So that was the, that's the that's the core and stem of the research. And then around that, um, the contemporary sources, uh, Plutarch, obviously, and then from after the original sources, then to uh, archaeologists and the work of scholars. Uh, and in all my research for the books, there are three of them, Dictators the Third in the trilogy, I've been working on them for 12 years, and the research runs to three quarters of a million words. So, you know, I had to do all the research for all three novels uh, right at the very beginning. Uh, I've gone on researching ever since, but um, the bulk of it was broken then. And... Um, you know, you have to know so much that you forget that you know it, if if you understand what I mean, and you so that you play in the research without even really thinking about it. Mm, absolutely. Was that daunting, that amount of research that you had to do all in one go? Oh, it was wonderful. I, I look back on it as one of the happiest periods of my professional life. I had had a success, which I hadn't really expected, with a, my first Roman novel, Pompeii, and that really uh, bought me the time to be able to devote myself to studying Cicero in his career in a way that really any kind of fortunate academic can get to do. So I was able to steep myself in it. And my aim was to, rather as Pompeii, Pompeii tried to describe Rome, Roman society from the point of view of a guy who ran the aqueducts. So what I wanted to do in this case was to really get on top of how the Roman democratic system Function the annual elections and the law courts and everything, and and to really write then it without even thinking about it as if as if it was I was the cliche West Wing on the Tiber sprang to mind. It was a procedural about Roman politics. Was it a challenge writing about a character, a figure who is kind of so accomplished, so famous? I suppose as well. Um, well, the great advantage about Cicero is that we do know so much about him and we know his thought processes and sometimes he'd write three or four letters in a day and we have all of them and so you can see his you can trace what he's feeling and thinking in a way that we don't have about any other figure in history for at least one and a half millennium I would think until you get to Pepys or Montaigne you know we really know what Cicero thought and that would that gives you a tremendous confidence as a writer because I I really did think feel that I knew Cicero in all his uh, complexity. And he's a, he's a very interesting uh, figure to write about, quite very modern in his sensibility, very accessible, and, and often on the back foot, often in jeopardy, uh, a, um, a self-made man, which makes him interesting, not someone from a grand family or with a huge amount of money or a soldier. You know, he rises in a way that a modern politician would understand by building up a network of supporters using the power of his oratory and his pen. Um, so for me, I, I found an immediate connection with him. Mm. Are there any figures uh, you know, elsewhere in history that we can compare to him? I think it's very hard to think of someone who was both so dominant in their country and also so shaped its culture. I, you know, the thing about Cicero is that the philosophy that he was forced to do at the end of his life for want of anything better to do uh, really fed through and fueled the Renaissance, sparked the Renaissance, some people feel. Uh, and so someone who's a combination of both the ruler and the creator of a 
literary culture. That is very rare. If you come into the 20th century, I suppose that Winston Churchill in some ways is quite similar to Cicero. Cicero was not a warrior in the way that Churchill was, but he he had a phenomenal appetite for life. And he was essentially a writer who was also a man of action. So he's constantly observing himself and, as it were, almost writing his memoirs as he goes along, which is what you feel with Churchill. So the two of them, I think, are quite similar. And in fact, I think that Churchill took a lot from Cicero that's rather been missed by historians. Has your impression of him changed over the course of your research and writing these books? I came to like Cicero more as I worked on the books. I came to understand him more. I think he becomes nicer as he gets older. He, he, he's ter- terrifically battered by life. He's, he's, he's wiped out at the beginning of Dictator his, his whole house has been burnt down, his property confiscated, he's driven into exile, he's completely ruined. And then later on in the novel, as he fights his way back, his marriage collapses, he has bad relations with his son and his brother and his nephew. All the people around him are murdered. You know, he, But somehow or other, he keeps on going through all this. And I really came to uh, admire his courage. Um, And I think he stood for something valuable. He came in his later years to really stand for uh, values, which we we would now recognise, that is, of the rule of law and of liberty. Um, And he died in in service of them. And for me, Cicero is a heroic figure, uh, which he's not often portrayed as, uh, certainly by uh, historians like Momsen in the 19th century. He paid quite a high, a, a high price for his values, didn't he? Well, you could say that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, he did. He was brutally murdered. He'd reached a very old age by Roman standards, who's 63. Um, but um, I think that in a way, he I wouldn't say that he sought the death that he had, but he knew it was likely and decided to go out in a great blaze of glory. I think he'd used those years studying philosophy to strengthen his character, uh, to steal himself, to do what he thought was right, knowing the price. He nearly brought it off, but he didn't in the end. But it means that the end of the novel and the end of the trilogy is not as uh, downbeat as one might suppose if one knows what happened to Cicero, because I think that he, his ideas went on and uh, the very last line of the dictator and of the trilogy is uh, all that remains for us of us is what is written down and that is what I profoundly feel that the, the life of Cicero leads up to. What would you say his more negative qualities were? Cicero's negative qualities were uh, duplicitousness. He would certainly say one thing to one person and something else to another. He was a lawyer, really. He could argue a case. He didn't necessarily believe that his client was innocent, but he could get him off and would use any tricks necessary to do so. Uh, He could be quite uh, cowardly. Uh, He uh, feared death. He feared bloodshed. Uh, He was... um, uh, ambitious, not, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. But certainly he had a degree of vanity um, and a belief that he alone 
was the man to run the republic. So, you know, there are, there are certainly negatives to him. He was also quite like the acquisition of properties. He had eight or nine houses in Italy by the time he finished. Not that he was corrupt, I don't think, but that he was he he was given a lot of legacies by by clients for who who he'd represented in the law courts. But he he could you could also see that he could be quite sybaritic and greedy as well. Mm. Of the characters in this book, are any others favourites of yours particularly? I came to really rather like Cato, Cato the uh, Younger, who um, was the great iron man of the uh, morally iron figure of the late Republic, who there's a wonderful moment when Caesar is conquering all before him in Gaul and um, wiping out hundreds of thousands of men, women and children without any authorization from the Senate, incidentally, but his supporters in the Senate and everyone uh, all get together to agree huge honours should be voted for him. Apart from Cato, who gets up and says that in his view, Caesar is a war criminal and should be handed over to the tribes of Germany with whom Rome had no quarrel because the way that Caesar has behaved is going to anger the gods and destroy the Roman Republic. And of course, Cato is howled down and ostracised, but it's a wonderful moment uh, of someone who is far-seeing and had the guts to say it. So I, I really, I mean, he was a pretty stern and forbidding figure character, you know, character uh, Cato, but um, one can't help but warm to him. What's your take on Caesar? Well, I think that Caesar um, comes less well out of my book than he does normally in popular fiction. That's a function of telling the story from Cicero's point of view, who admired uh, Caesar's qualities, but recognised in him a menace to, to liberty and the Republic. And he rejoiced Cicero in Caesar's assassination, which he witnessed and which I describe in the book. Um, I see uh, Cicero, Caesar as a classic uh, psychopathic personality. He was, he, he was extremely self-centered, cunning, clever, uh, ruthless, um, a gambler, constantly willing to bet everything on the next throw of the dice, uh, and cold-blooded in his attitude to... Um, others. He could be very charming, as psychopaths often can. But for me, um, the, Caesar is like Napoleon, or if you want to be very uncharitable, I suppose uh, there's something of Hitler in him too. Uh, the, the populations, provinces, countries were mere baubles and playthings to him in pursuit of his glory. And I think that he was fortunate in a way to be assassinated uh, when he was, just before he left on this vast expedition of 36 uh, legions to Parthia, invading Iraq and Iran as they are today, because I think that could well have been his 1812 for Napoleon or his 1941 invading Russia for Hitler, the step too far. He was always going to destroy himself by stepping too far. So I take a, a rather negative view of Caesar compared to most writers. What lessons do you think this period has for us today in the 21st century? I think the lesson of the period is that things that seem so solid, uh, things that have lasted for centuries, democratic systems, are not necessarily permanent, um, that they can be undermined and fall away quite rapidly. And I suppose the fundamental issue of this whole trilogy of novels is that is the question, can a democratic system that evolved for a country when it was small and only 
had a citizens' militia. Can that democratic system withstand becoming the world's sole superpower with all the huge security apparatus of standing armies and all the money that flows through the political system from, from the imperial possessions? Is it possible to retain your democratic state? Uh, that is, I think, a question certainly that one sees in the modern United States. And then I suppose there's also the haunting um, sense that Rome, for all its military power and its technical and cultural sophistication and dominance, nevertheless collapsed. And when we're tempted to look at the forces, say, in the Middle East and rising in Africa and feel ourselves completely superior to them technologically, militarily, culturally, um, we do feel as a Roman might have felt uh, 2,000 years ago, looking at the barbarian hordes in the east. You know, nothing is fixed and certain. I think that's the haunting quality of uh, the ancient world. And um, what new impression of this period and of these characters would you like this particular book to give to readers? I would like to restore Cicero to his rightful place as one of the creators and shapers of modern civilization, I would like him to be seen as um, a partner with Caesar, oddly enough, in creating uh, the Western world. Caesar did the military work. He conquered Gaul, invaded Germany, invaded Britain, and in that way, as Mommsen, Theodore Mommsen argued, kind of nailed Greco-Roman culture to the West in a way that then, obviously, with the conquest of, of America, skewed the whole way that the world would develop. But alongside that, and parallel with it, you have Cicero, who put Greek philosophy into Latin and who uh, really created almost a sort of written culture in Rome that hadn't really been there before. And miraculously, enough of it survived into the Middle Ages to create, to spark and create the Renaissance. And uh, so I want at the end of these books for people to know who Cicero was and to have some sense of him uh, and for him no longer to be relegated as as, he, as Shakespeare does, to no longer rele relegate him to a bit part, but to see him for what he was. That was Robert Harris. Dictator is out now in the UK, published by Hutchinson. In the US, it's due to be published early next year by Deckel Edge. And that is pretty much it for this week. But please do listen next time, when we'll be joined by Melvin Bragg to talk about the Peasants' Revolt, and we'll be finding out about an amazing Cold War spy. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>